0: Hello, and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman, and today I'm talking to one of Canada's most prolific adventurers. Sharon Wood has climbed all kinds of mountains, Denali and Aconcagua, the two highest in North and South America, Mount Logan, the highest peak in Canada, but none captured the imagination quite like Mount Everest. Sharon was 29 years old when she became the first North American woman to summit Everest. She was part of the Everest Light Expedition in 1986. Since then, she's become a public speaker and now the author of Rising, her memoir about that 86 expedition. I spoke with Sharon from her backyard in Canmore. You'll hear it in the conversation, but perhaps not surprising for someone whose life has been so closely linked to the outdoors. Here's her story. Let's just start with the basics then Sharon. how did you become a climber?
1: Uh, I would say uh, my dad introduced me to the mountains or his introduce his 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 passion for the mountains he took me hiking and uh and uh skiing and camping and uh I discovered that I felt most at home in the mountains and then when I was uh <sighs> Climbing wasn't a very accessible sport back in uh, the dark ages there in the 70s. So uh, I the only way in was to hire a mountain guide, mm. a Swiss mountain guide. And later that summer, go to an outward bound course when I was 17 years old. And uh, I got enough of an introduction to climbing to know that uh, I loved it.
0: 17 years old are you still living in Vancouver at this time or have you moved out on your own uh I had
1: moved out on my own actually yeah I moved uh away from home when I was 16 well just before my 16th birthday
0: okay and so where did you uh, make the move to
1: I went to Jasper Alberta I went to the mountains
0: yeah okay so uh so you found your your place (laughs) where the mountains were and uh, and threw yourself uh, headfirst into it. When when did Everest uh, come onto the scene or capture your imagination?
1: Uh, that was uh, uh, evolution that happened over a decade. Oh, well, actually, a dozen years. And so Everest came into my scope, I would say, in uh, 1982 when Canada first went to Everest. Launched their first expedition there and some of my peers were on that trip and I uh, started thinking, geez, if if Canada ever goes back, I'd, I would really love to be on the next expedition.
0: What was it about being in the mountains for you? What was it that uh, was drawing you up these difficult rock faces or mountain faces that appealed to you?
1: I discovered that I loved the, it's a highly, highly engaging sport. When you are rock climbing, you're not thinking about anything else but that next move. You get this very intense focus and I liked that. You know, I liked how it took me away from sort of all these peripheral thoughts of, you know, maybe your my car insurance expiring or mm-hmm. the fight I had with my boyfriend. All I was thinking about was the climbing. And so it brought out the best in me. It brought out a very high level of performance.
0: So it's a matter of presence then or being in a flow state or, or hyper focus. That's what you're feeling.
1: Yeah, I like that. Yeah, being in a flow state and being hyper focused, hyper vigilant, Yeah. right? Don't really, there are times when you can't really make a mistake. And and I wouldn't say that I started out immediately climbing these big, messy, dangerous faces. Um, Climbing is a multifaceted sport. And I became an alpine climber, which combines rock climbing, which is what I started in, waterfall ice climbing or ice climbing, um, mountain climbing, big mountain climbing involves uh, altitude. And so that when I said it was a gradual evolution, I started stacking each one of those components on top of one another right. to get into alpine climbing.
0: Right. One one doesn't decide to climb Everest or Mount Logan and, you know, do it the very next day. That's a, that's a process to get there, of, of doing uh, many different things first in a lead up to that.
1: Well, for me, it was a long apprenticeship. I can't say it's the same these days. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: But, but we'll talk about that later.
0: Uh, I would like to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 1986 is the year of your team's summit. You've been thinking about it for a few years. You know, 82 came around and uh, you had some of these familiar characters. Well, well, first of all, who were some of the names that you had known from 82 uh, that you were following and, you know, made you think that maybe this was a possibility or that, that kind of uh, fanned a flame for you to want to do this if the opportunity yeah. arose?
1: Right, yeah. These names... Um... Dwayne Congdon, who I actually went to the summit with, mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, he was a, a colleague with me in the Yamnuska Mountain School, and uh, James Blench, uh, Dave McNabb, um, my mentor, Laurie Skreslet, who was mm-hmm. the first Canadian to reach the top of Mount Everest in 1982, uh, Pat Morrow, a good friend of mine, Jim Alzinga. Who became uh, the leader for the 1986 Everest Light Expedition? Mm-hmm. And um, I knew some of the other men. There were 22 men on that expedition, and I knew I have to. I, I knew ten of them.
0: Yeah, yeah. So a lot of names that were familiar to you and that made the prospect. I think anything like that, it becomes maybe a bit more real uh, that you, you see people that you know doing something like that and, um, and suddenly it doesn't seem so far off perhaps to want to do it yourself.
1: Yeah, you know, um, it was a, a combination of, of, of factors for me that gelled just at that time. Um, that expedition was plagued with bad luck and, and conflict and tragedy. And part of it was the way these men dealt with the tragedy and had to make a very, very difficult decision whether to stay on with the expedition or go home. And some of them decided to leave the expedition once uh, the uh, two Sherpa and uh, one Canadian were killed and others stayed on. and it was the intensity. It was their loyalty to one another. It was their drive. It was, it was the strength of their character that really inspired me. And I, and I realized, of course, I would never ask for that kind of tragedy or those kind that difficult of a decision. But I realized that um, I wanted to be with those men the next time if they went.
0: Mm-hmm. So how did you get involved with this team, the Everest light team in 86?
1: I worked really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, when, uh, after 82, I realized I was going to have to start taking climbing really serious and, seriously. And up to that point, I was just drifting. I was, I had a bit of natural ability and, uh, and, uh, I was pursuing my certification, but, I wasn't thinking about big mountains. Well, you know, I'd climbed a couple, but then just then it really lit a fire under me. So I started training quite hard and going to altitude. I spent a lot of time in, the Peruvian Andes mm-hmm. uh, went down to uh, further south to Aconcagua in Argentina, climbed Aconcagua, and climbed these mountains, went up to Denali, mm-hmm. climbed it uh, by a difficult route, the the Cassine Ridge, and I was choosing routes, uh, alpine routes, rather than mountaineering routes. And what I mean by what the, the difference there is, alpine routes are often... Um, a uh, a uh, a harder more complicated a more demanding uh technically demanding route uh whereas a mountaineering route is are often um the route of least resistance to the top mm-hmm. but i was interested very very engaged in the problem solving
0: where would you classify yourself I'm, i i'm assuming well there's a perception perhaps that uh there may be two schools of thought of people who are drawn to these sorts of things one would be the risk takers, ones who want to push themselves in every regard, and there are others might be more cautious or meticulous about every step in preparation. Uh, where do you fall typically on the kind of the line between caution to the wind and, and over preparing?
1: I put myself in the middle, I suppose. Uh, it, it wasn't caution to the wind for me. I, I just had this insatiable curiosity about my own potential and mining that potential and each climb and each objective became a little more challenging or a little more demanding and I loved the feeling of rising to each one of those those climbs and uh, what I needed to put out what I needed to have to uh, to climb them so the risk part of it. Well, they say when you play for more than you can afford to lose, you stand to gain. And I, I was, I was careful. Um, but they are the mountains. So I think I was immortal then, really, Martin. Mm.
0: <laughs> As <laughs> many that, young people do.
1: I think that's that's how I, I justified it in a way, or I I thought this won't happen to me, or it became more important to me to perform well than it than it was to to uh, focus on the risk. But you, you, but you don't do that when you're climbing. You don't focus on the, the fear or the risk. You, you channel it.
0: Right. Well, you, if you only focused on that, you probably would never would never attempt it in the first place or wouldn't make it very far, I would imagine. Yeah. You had mentioned uh, climbing at altitude. What what would qualify as climbing at altitude? Is that just any point at which, uh, at which it starts to affect... Cognition or your general kind of body's health, or you know, when things start to shut down, what what, what's sort of the cutoff between um what one might be able to do with little uh concern for their health and when you start to have to pay attention to what you're doing?
1: Yeah. That's a good question. Um I would say altitude for me would be uh five thousand meters. Yeah, okay. 5,000 meters, where you, 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 there is a, a noticeable difference that all your physical and mental capacities are somewhat compromised.
0: Right, okay, so that's what you're trying to do uh, in the lead-up to an Everest expedition. Are you doing these sorts of, of, of climbs uh, with the knowledge that Everest is to come, or you're doing them in the hopes that if I prove myself on these summits, then I might be considered for such a thing?
1: That was the question I was asking myself. Am I just climbing these mountains to get onto an Everest team? Is that all I want or do I just genuinely love this? Hmm. And I answered that question pretty clearly by the time I was in the Cordillera Blanca in Peru, uh, climbing at altitude and solo climbing uh six thousand meter peaks and that was um just the year before i went to everest and um if for nothing else i did it for this year the the the, the, the passion and the feeling of purpose that it gave me
0: when you say solo climbing i'm assuming that means uh you're, you're unsupported by any other team it's just you and uh, all of the equipment that you need to get yourself up to the to the summit, is that right?
1: That's right. no um, no rope. No rope. <laughs> no rope. <laughs> yeah. And uh it was a I and I chose I chose to do a couple of solo climbs. Well I I spent three months in Peru in nineteen
2: eighty-five
1: in the mountains and I was there with uh, a climbing partner and uh and um some of my future potential future uh Everest uh teammates and I did a number of climbs and in the in-between I did a couple of solo climbs. I was just really, really felt the pull to climb a couple of peaks on my own and and more technical peaks. and uh, and that was the time it really uh, the whole my answer, my answer came to me.
0: Did it come in a particular moment, or what uh, you know what led you to knowing?
1: Yeah, I knew when i' I've always been really, really good at self-doubt.
0: When you say good at self-doubt, you mean <laughs> you mean you you're prone to self-doubt or good at I ignoring it. I am very
1: it? prone to self-doubt. Okay, yeah. And I I I am I am my worst judge and jury. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was wondering if I was just starstruck by Everest and this was the source of the motivation as i mentioned earlier or whether i just love this so this solo climb for me i started out in the afternoon and climbed up onto the glacier to the base of the face spent the night alone at the base of the face with the intention the next morning of, of getting up at 3 a.m. and climbing this face in the cool uh, hours and reaching the summit at uh, sunrise. And this face was quite steep, and a no-falling-allowed kind of affair involving some fairly technical ice climbing, you know, steep being uh, 75 degrees in a small section then 45 degrees so no falling and, and a couple thousand feet high or, you know, uh, maybe, uh, what would that be, 900, um, 700 meters high. Yeah. And I remember that night wondering if I was going to back off, uh, go home, or whether I could just get up and do it. And that, that just making myself get up in the morning and believe and begin was a fascinating process. And then once I was started you 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 referred to uh, being in the zone earlier mm-hmm. all I was thinking about was the cadence of my breathing and each 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 ice axe placement, each foot placement and my senses were flared and I had never felt more alive in my life and using more of my potential and ability than at that time.
0: Mm. This is in, in Peru, in the Huascarán National Park area, is it? Or, yes, or that's
1: right. It? Yeah, I was actually climbing the west face of Takaraju that day when I was overcome by that um, state of, of, of being. And and I had experienced that state before, but I had doubted it because mm. Everest had come into the picture, right? And um, the that climb, and then uh, a couple days later, I climbed the north face of uh, Rapolka And uh, I had that same feeling again, that I just felt most alive in the climbing, in that zone. And um, I just was passionate about climbing.
0: Mm. That's but why I
1: was going to go to Everest.
0: Yeah, yeah. This might be an appropriate moment to talk about a term. There's a Roman term that you use in your book. Genius loci that you make mention yeah. of. How would you define that, and and how it factors into mountaineering or your approach to mountaineering?
1: Oh yeah, huh? Um, well, genius loci means um, uh, the the presence of, of of spirit and and place and and every mountain I have gone to or been on. It exudes a certain yeah sense of presence and uh, it doesn't matter how beautiful it is, how name brand it is, how famous that peak is. I go by this 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 feeling, this sense and sometimes it can be a very malign, almost dark, uncomfortable, feeling and I and I and I won't climb the mountain mm-hmm. or I will I will take extra caution, I will give it more time. And sometimes I just feel this kind of benign welcoming sense. and I'm not saying that the mountain itself has a spirit, but yeah I can't I can't really describe it. It, it is an un, um, In-
0: ineffable perhaps.
1: Ineffable. I mean. That's a nice word. Yeah, I'll go with that.
0: Yeah, can can feel but not describe. Yeah. So is it a gut feeling then? Uh, Is that what it is, or just? uh... Yeah,
1: it's a gut feeling, and I have turned tail on some mountains, and um, and I have always deferred to uh, others who have had the same feeling in the first sense or that that sense or or people who are more conservative than me. I will I will I respect that and listen to that because. I, I believe that is a part, uh, uh, one of the many, many variables involved in climbing any mountain. Yeah. Is that sense?
0: Yeah. Well, there are so many variables involved uh, in an expedition and uh, expedition such as Everest in particular, perhaps. There's so many different ways of getting up the mountain as well. There's, you know, 18 or more than 18 different named routes. Of course, it seems most people do one of two. Um, how does how does your team's route that you decide to climb uh, differ from what had been the the tried and true way or the or the fastest or most efficient or guaranteed way, if so?
1: How does it differ? Um, it uh, was seldom climbed. It had been climbed by fifteen men and eight had died. Mm. So the odds weren't fantastic, which mm-hmm. didn't make it that appealing. Um, it was a more—it's a much more technical route um, involving, um, and and many of the the the, the more technical difficulties uh, were eight thousand meters and above. So the extra time and exertion spent above eight thousand meters, where you're in a third. Essentially, in an atmosphere equivalent to uh, a a third of what we're breathing at sea level in terms of oxygen, makes it uh, a little trickier. And also, one more factor was that the the north side of the mountain is known to be about 10 degrees cooler on average than the south side of the mountain. And it's darn windy. Uh (laughs) It's really windy, (laughs) the West Ridge. So... There were a number of elements that, um, and also these two routes that you refer to uh, which are pretty much the routes of least resistance which are the South Call route and the North Ridge are now fixed from, with rope from bottom to top by Sherpas or rope docker, doctors and, and maintained throughout the climbing season. So essentially, you you clamp your uh, a mechanical sender onto these ropes and start making your way up. So long, uh, long answer to a short question. Martin is um, we wanted to make it more difficult for ourselves because the notion of rising to that challenge and finding the resources within ourselves as an autonomous unit without sherpas is very compelling Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. so this might be a good time to paint a picture of what it what the mountain looked like in 1986 compared to now you know if you mentioned there's ropes from bottom to top now what what were your circumstances then what were you dealing with then
1: Um, so China had just reopened um, her borders, right, um, in the early '80s, and we were there in 1986. So we were the first and only, uh, well, the the first expedition to arrive at at base camp on the north side in the Rongbuk Valley. No one else was in the valley. Mm-hmm and only two other uh, small teams also unsupported no sherpa arrived uh, a little later on to share the base camp area with us right there were only so there were only 3 teams climbing on the north side that year compared to
0: <laughs> i don't know how many these days yeah
1: yeah I, I don't know either, but I think it's more like 30 teams and some yeah. of them, most, most of them, my understanding, are commercial teams or commercial outfitters.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you were there, uh, it was your team and then the Americans and the Spaniards that you were That's there at right. the same time with. Yeah. What does your daily routine look like on an Everest expedition? Like, uh, particularly, perhaps, the first things you do each day and then the last things you do each day. First, your mornings and then, you know. All the all the sorts of things you have to take uh, take care of and do, in the course of getting up such a mountain.
1: Right. Um. What altitude would you like me to describe?
0: I suppose it's different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. It's a
1: bit different.
0: Well, what does it look like? Let's say leaving base camp, and then what does it look like uh, at at uh, at an elevation like seven thousand meters?
1: Okay. Um so we had to close a distance of uh 13 kilometers from base camp to the base of the mountain and we had yaks carry uh for the first uh eight kilometers or so to uh camp one which was at about 5700 meters i believe and uh what, uh, the, your, your first, your most important task when you're beginning these expeditions is to look after your health. At our base camp, we're at um, 5,200 meters, I believe. And you're, you're struggling to acclimatize. And acclimatization is so important. You're struggling to acclimatize to already a half atmosphere. And so you are, um, your biggest tasks are to make sure you sleep. Um, eat and hydrate well, um, and that you keep moving and breathing and moderate your your pace throughout the day so that you don't overexert yourself, but mm-hmm. you are at the same time um, moving and, and functioning and slowly your body is going to acclimatize. That's the idea.
0: And, uh, and acclimatizing because, I mean, health on such an expedition is so critical if you want to have a, a chance of being one of the ones to make an attempt on the summit.
1: Yeah and health is so fragile mm. because you are already you know at base camp reduced to a fraction of your normal uh, physical and mental capacity mm-hmm. <laughs> and you will never regain full working capacity above that altitude and uh, and it, it only there's only worse to come. And so, you know, people ask what you need to do to train for an expedition like this. Spend a lot of time at altitude yeah. because everybody's physiology is, is a little different, right? We all have uh, slightly different foods that we need to eat, different sleep patterns, uh, different routines. Um, and to know your self-care at that stage is really important. The tricky part, Martin, is... Because we were a small team and we didn't have Sherpa, we uh, were required to work ten days or seven days out of ten or yeah. more
2: yeah.
1: Um, to to reach our goal mm-hmm. of our summit bid time between May tenth and may twentieth that's all oh, that's historically been the best window of time to climb it, and we arrived there in the middle of March, mm-hmm. so we spent. 70 days on that mountain yeah yeah and and the remarkable thing about this team is we all threw in everything we had Hmm. and yet here we are trying to conserve our energy but yet we know we have to keep shouldering those loads and stringing out those ropes so you can't you can't hold back and save yourself for the summit bid. And 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 throughout all this, we, um, you know, everybody's health and safety is our business. Yeah. <laughs> so We're watching each other carefully um, for, uh, and I'll get into the signs of high altitude sickness in a minute, mm-hmm. but we're dependent on one another's good judgment and maintaining these ropes and noticing the small things that could kill you.
2: <laughs>
0: right,
1: right. <laughs> Once you're on the mountain. Um, and we're also noticing who are the most consistent performers because we know, even though we all started out aiming for the top, no one was slated for the summit in the beginning. We know that there's a high attrition rate, and in the end, we would be lucky if there were two out of the 11 climbers to reach the summit. Mm
0: hmm. Mm hmm. What are the most pressing things that you and your team are paying attention to, that do pose threats that might be fatal threats if if ignored or if there are tiny slip ups or or even just some things that are beyond your control? Uh, but what are the what are the most imminent threats on a mountain like Everest?
1: The most uh, imminent uh, imminent threats. Um are um is high altitude sickness and there's there's two conditions there's cerebral edema Mm -hmm. and there's pulmonary edema and and both of those conditions uh, pulmonary is 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 extra fluid in the lungs and with cerebral there's extra fluid in the brain and uh either one are deadly (laughs)
2: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) can Mm -hmm. be fatal in a very short time and the problem is is it can be very random you know, even though most of us, uh, all of us had been to high altitude before, we had a fairly uh, consistent record of doing well at high altitude, still um, one of our members came down with, uh, in fact, Laurie Skreslet, our team member who had uh, previously uh, well, we climbed uh, to the top of Everson 82, came down with cerebral edema at 7,000 meters, mm-hmm. very fast. And we had to evacuate him very quickly.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And it's very and these symptoms are are very insidious because you feel crappy a lot of the time.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> you know we we'll, we'll get to a new altitude. We try to gain the the, the formula is about three thousand feet every three days and another part of the formula is to work high sleep low so there's a lot up and down hey
0: yeah yeah that (laughs) that was one of the things uh, sharon that i think struck me most in reading your book was and it's probably second nature to anyone who's done this sort of thing before uh, but uh, as an outsider to think that it's not just about climbing one way but you're going up and then back down and then up and then back down again So you're really climbing Everest, uh, at least some of these sections, a number of times.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we figured we climbed it on an average of seven or eight times each. (laughs) You know, and um, I have to say, though, Martin, it's a little different than how it's done today on the commercial expeditions.
2: Hmm. Um,
1: But um, because we weren't planning to use oxygen... And be dependent on on oxygen above eight thousand meters, we were uh, very, very careful uh, in our method of acclimatizing to to eight thousand meters
0: mm-hmm. so, so so what does that accomplish or what is that what is the purpose of constantly not just ascending but then descending again it, it's to it's to help with the acclimatization process
1: yeah, so um what we would do is expose ourselves um, for a short time to those higher altitudes harden and, and harden the body, right, harden the system, then go back down,
2: mm-hmm.
1: rest at a lower altitude and recover, and then expose ourselves again a couple of times before we moved up to the, at that altitude. And that was a gentler way than just uh, going up to that altitude because... You can't recover if your body is struggling to accu- to acclimatize. You can't recover from the exertion, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. the
1: stress, and there's a lot of stress throughout the day.
0: Mm. What are the sorts of things that are particularly demanding? You <laughs> could probably list everything. What What are the particularly demanding parts about a summit attempt uh, to Everest? The the stressors.
1: Um, uh, I'll say what's demanding. Uh, just in a in a day above six thousand meters. How about that for mm-hmm. now?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, for sleep, yeah. it's it's hard to get enough sleep because you are suffering from an oxygen debt. You'll you'll wake up periodically because your body doesn't like not being able to breathe very well or get enough oxygen. Um, you know, as soon as you as soon as I get up in the morning, I drink a liter of water
2: mm-hmm.
1: of warm water. And uh, I drink six to eight liters of water throughout the day to stay hydrated. And yeah, and then eating is really just, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not that pleasurable. It's just what you do for fuel. You, 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 you eat for fuel and you rest to recover, basically. And uh, then the, the climbing itself, uh, we're careful to not carry uh, really heavy loads, Mm-hmm. So that we don't uh, overextend ourselves, but throughout the day we're facing gale force winds mm-hmm. on that side of the mountain, and um, learning how to move in those winds and pace ourselves, um, and to stay to stay calm mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 uh, comfortable, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're comfortable you save a lot of energy and so there is so many small things that you do to stay comfortable and uh you know that like you can't afford to get cold for instance and and you better know how to stay warm by the time you get to Everest hmm.
2: how
1: how to how to layer your clothing and then um carrying uh, let's say you're just uh I mean there's an Two roles on the expedition. One is stringing out ropes in the lead position, Mm -hmm. and one is uh, carrying loads um, to support uh, the lead team. And we would rotate through these positions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, when you're carrying a load, it's uh, moving, just moving for eight hours a day with a respiratory rate of three times faster than your normal respiratory rate.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, You're breathing faster, your heart is beating faster, and if you're going to a new altitude, you'll often have a headache and you'll feel lethargic. Mm -hmm. You're not feeling at your best, yet you're still moving.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned uh, the cold, and in prior to this, uh, mentioned how the route that your team chose was even ten degrees colder than what perhaps the south face would be. Um, what kind of temperatures were you dealing with during the days and then nights as well?
1: Uh, uh, up to about up to about six thousand meters, we were in our shirt sleeves. Okay. On, on some days, and some days we were in. All our layers (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and above uh, above 6,000 meters where the climbing began, um, we were in one or two layers at the best because it's like an oven. You can imagine the ultraviolet. There's there's uh, less uh, filtering of the ultraviolet rays and Mm. it can be really hot and Mm -hmm. very bright. Mm -hmm. In fact, the sun can be so intense that you burn the roof of your mouth and your tongue.
0: Oh wow.
2: Because
1: you're panting all day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But temperatures uh, above six thousand meters or above um I would say above uh uh seventy three, seventy three hundred meters anywhere from minus twenty, minus forty wind chill.
0: Yeah, yeah. So and and nighttime uh similar situation or cooler yet?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah my well the same it the, you know I'm when I'm saying those temperatures you know minus 20 to minus 40 at night it 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 definitely cools off when yeah. you don't have any radiation and uh and it's not just the ambient temperature it is when you have uh, less oxygenated blood in your system, your extremities are the first to suffer. Mm. So your fingers and toes uh, get, get, get colder because of the lack of oxygenated blood. So your gloves can be off for a few seconds or, in my case, uh, on a summit bid, um, my, my, my face was fully covered. Mm -hmm. With goggles and balaclava, and um, my balaclava had slipped just below my, to to leave two open spaces, uh, just below my goggles, and I had these two black triangles like war paint Mm
0: -hmm.
1: for a few weeks afterward.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned your teammate, Laurie Skreslet, already. I mean, uh, on a climb like Everest, there are no guarantees of making it to the top, or even on a successful team, you know, a team that successfully summits, you might fall sick, or you might have to play a supporting role for other teammates to reach the top. You know, you you have a team of 11 people, and you might be one of those nine who are then supporting two to get to the top. Um, Laurie, there's a part in the book you mentioned where he's asking you two questions. Well, two questions that you have to ask yourself. The one being, how bad do you want it? And also, how will you recognize when it's your turn? Um, how did you know when it was your turn?
1: I didn't know when it was my turn, Martin. That, that was a, a very difficult decision for me. Um, or I, I denied it. It, it towards the end of the expedition um we were starting to uh, we realized we were nearing the summit bid if we were even going to get to it because we were we were spent as a team
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, there were uh four of us who stood out who could uh, perform consistently above seven thousand meters. And uh, so we were uh, slated uh, for first and second summit bid team. And, and I was amazed that I was one of those four and that I had gotten to that. I had I had gotten to that point. Right. And uh, by that time, the four of us had divided into work teams because we were working uh, above 7000 meters together work. So we were um, in partners And uh, I had got accustomed and started planning with my partner uh, the summit bid and assumed that we were going to go second. Mm -hmm. And this is a hard story for me. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I wanted to go second, actually, for uh, a selfish reason, for one, uh, because... uh, there was, uh, the, the ropes would stop uh, before the final camp, the summit bid camp at Camp 6, which mm-hmm. was at uh, 8,000 meters. And the second reason I wanted to go second was we knew that Dwayne Cognon, who had been on the 82 trip, was going to go first because he had the most experience
2: mm-hmm.
1: with his partner. And, and it was uh, just before this meeting that uh, the leader of the expedition, Jim Elzinga, approached me and said, hey... I think you should go on the first summit bid with Dwayne Congdon. And I bought and said, there's, there's no way we're going to change that plan now because Dwayne's been working with his partner for this long of a time. And Albie and I, or my other part, my partner and I have a plan. And, Mm -hmm. and he said, uh, but there was this other detail <laughs> and and that was um there was uh, the American team was also climbing a route on the North face. Mm-hmm. And there also happened to be an American woman by the name of Annie Whitehouse, um who was pitched by the media um, as being um, the first North American. or or pitched as vying to be the first North American woman to get to the top of Mount
2: Everest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We
1: were pitched against each other, which was a really uncomfortable scenario Yeah, because that wasn't how it was (laughs) within between us or within our teams. Mm -hmm. And and I was really annoyed with that misrepresentation and that extra uh, pressure. And uh, I did not want to make it a race of any kind. So I told Jim, Jim, there's no way. This isn't a race. I don't care who gets to the top first. Mm-hmm. And Jim said, well, I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we do. You know, why not? Quit. He said, quit being so Canadian. And, and so I uh, changed my mind and I went with Twain on the first Summit bid team. I know that's a long answer. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, no. But that's, uh, that's got to be a, a, a difficult moment, right? Uh, a very pressure-filled possible moment of, of knowing you're, you're slated to be on the second Summit team. And having to uh, kind of swap places, and and um, and I imagine that can be a tense team moment of of wanting the best for your teammates and wanting your teammates to to uh, be all on board in the same thing, even if you're you yourself are still trying to get on board with that decision yourself too.
1: Yeah, it was awful and very uncomfortable because I had to I went and spoke to each uh, uh, of the other um, men on the summit bid. Teams to tell them what my decision was, or to ask them permission mm-hmm. to go on the first summit bid team
2: mm-hmm.
1: and 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 up to this point, everybody had been so equal, and I had downplayed, and everybody had downplayed in fact, completely forgotten about this first woman thing.
0: Mm-hmm. It
2: was
1: a part of our team
0: mm-hmm. and that and that for you wasn't a consideration either; it was more about being part of the team to make the bid than to be the first woman to, uh, you know, the first woman from the from the Americas to reach the top.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: let's talk oxygen on a summit bid like this. How do you decide when to use it and how much uh, to use? I imagine you, there's only so much you can bring up with you at a given time to then be able to use it in that in those final stages of a summit bid.
1: Yeah, oxygen. That is such a weird controversy. How long can you go, um, or or or, be under sustained hypoxia before you die? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 very weird. But um, it it was a part of style, right? The less oxygen you use, the less artificial uh, equipment or uh, support that you use, the the better the style you climb the mountain in, right? And we were trying to climb it in good style. So we were planning on or thinking about climbing it without any oxygen at all. But by the time we got to the first summit bid, which was a four-day climb from – the base of the mountain from 6,000 meters to the summit, um, we pulled all stops. And so we started using oxygen for the first time, even though we'd been working above uh, 7,300 meters without oxygen prior to this. On the summit bid, we started using it at 7,300 meters. And we had these old fashioned bottles, which weighed um, 18 pounds each. Um, sorry, I don't know what that is in kilos. Because <laughs> uh, pounds
0: is bad. fine with me. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's heavy and, enough.
1: Yeah, they were they were heavy, and uh, and the each oxygen bottle would last ten hours maximum under ideal conditions, mm-hmm. using it at a very low flow rate of two to three liters per minute. My understanding is most people climb with eight liters at eight liters per minute. Mm -hmm. And so uh, our strategy from 7,300 meters was to start using it and meet it out carefully, um, turning it off or just keeping it on at a two-liter flow for the first day, which took us um, from Camp 5 to Camp 6. And then the second day, uh, the summit bid day, uh, we knew it was going to be longer than 10 hours.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, we started out with the oxygen because it keeps us warm. Yeah. yeah. It, it makes a huge difference um, to the circulation uh, of oxygenated blood in your fingers and toes. And we started out with a two liter flow and then we, re, then we turned it off. We were turning our oxygen off intermittently. With a strategy of just using it, uh, turning it up to a four liter flow maximum for us, um, just through the uh, technical section or the, the crux of the climb, which was a 400 uh, or a hundred meter high section of mixed rock,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, snow, and ice. Uh,
0: and this is this technical part of the climb. This is at what, what altitude would you be at at this point?
1: The, we're at eight uh 83, eighty three eighty eighty two hundred meters yeah
0: yeah so mm-hmm. i mean you're you're very high up at that point uh altitude i imagine is is taking its effects on the mind mm-hmm. how does how does um how does that manifest in your everest expedition? how did you notice altitude affecting your own decision making or just making things more difficult than it would have otherwise been
1: uh Everything I did took uh, a multiple amount of time as what it would take down below mm-hmm. um, to tie my shoelaces uh, to make a decision um, to i 'm moving incredibly slowly i 'm um, gasping for breath it 's like it's like I am very, very foggy in my thinking. Mm.
0: And as you're in this state, uh, it seems like there's, there's a window of time at which you have to reach the summit, but not just to reach it, but then you got to get back down again, too, uh, because the longer you're at this altitude, uh, then, then the more you kind of stray into that window where it uh, becomes dangerous to be at that altitude for longer. When do you realize that uh, you've potentially spent too long reaching the summit and need to you know, get down the mountain fast?
1: As soon as you get there, <laughs> uh, you know it's a very uncomfortable feeling. You feel like, you know, um, y- you've got a headache pretty much all the time by then, and you know your brain cells are dying at a faster rate than than any other time in your life. <laughs> mm. And uh, it's, a, it's a very uncomfortable uh, feeling, and you know that each step upward that you make is one step, uh, another step you have to take to get down and out of it. So it's, it's, an, it's a feeling, it's a very uncertain time, and um, you have to have a tremendous amount of, of, of faith that, I, I don't think I was thinking clearly, you know. I mean, we kept going up when, when most people wouldn't have. Mm. Um, the day we went for the summit, Uh, we were already spent from a horrendous three days getting up to that uh, camp, fighting our way through storms and carrying big loads, bigger loads than we'd ever carried. So we were already spent. And there is a part of us, you know, that um, our our part of us is and our, our bodies are screaming to say, to, to say enough, enough, get the heck out of here. Mm-hmm. And another part of us in the mind is saying, you've got more. You can do this. So ideally, I mean, my theory is you, you've got about a, a maximum, you've got about a 24-hour window of time to be up above 8,000 meters and to get back down before you get into serious trouble Mm. And by the time we reached the top of Everest at uh, 9 p.m., um, it took us 12 hours to get to the summit. We had already um, been at altitude above 8,000 meters for 24 hours.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, there's an expectation, I think. we, At the beginning of our conversation, you had talked about the motivations for climbing for you and what it, what it provided to you. Uh, I think a sense of satisfaction, of testing yourself. I think there's an expectation that you do something like Everest and the summit must come with this outpouring of emotion or satisfaction, completion. What did you feel at the top uh, you know, compared to what the expectation might've been?
1: Yeah, completely the opposite of what I thought. I had had this very romantic <clears throat> vision in my mind of, you know, doing the Sir Edmund Hillary thing, putting the flag on my axe and holding it above my head and, and feeling, having these feelings of exaltation and triumph. And, and what really happened is there we were on our hands and our knees and, and panting and looking at one another. And I don't know who said it, but um, uh, we said, let's tag the top and get the hell out of here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We knew we, were, we knew we had been too high too long and um we knew that we were we were in trouble
0: Mm. so uh, i mean needless to say you're you're probably both ready to be at the bottom again by the time you've reached the top uh there's little time for savoring and you're ready to be back down and and with the team again and um and return to uh some sense of of normalcy um how do you handle the attention that came from a climb like this i mean it's a very different world Going from a small team of people with little contact with the outside world to these large receptions, uh, everyone wanting to meet you, get a picture, uh, everyone wanting a piece of you uh, and a piece of your story.
1: I had... It was most unexpected. Uh, I I didn't know how to handle the attention and all the stimulus. Right after being on a monochromatic in a monochromatic uh, environment, you know, of rock and snow, and mm-hmm. just living with thirteen people, like you say, and and I had never had that kind of attention before. And and I was an introvert, so I I was like a deer in the headlights. And I didn't know, uh, even now it's hard for me to do an interview, but then, you know, I've got these questions being thrown at me and, and people also assume that you're over the moon
2: mm-hmm, about
1: mm-hmm. your accomplishment. And, and to make matters worse, um, I felt terribly uncomfortable being singled out because I was the um, anomaly, right? right. At, and the rest of my team were so quickly forgotten by the media. That was really uncomfortable.
0: Mm. Being singled out uh, because uh, as much as it was about the team, the media may have had a tendency to still make it about, here is now Sharon Wood, the first, you know, North American woman to reach the summit of Mount Everest. Yeah, that
1: that was the news. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. A place like Everest, I imagine, can easily take up space in any person's life. Um, You know, how do you relate to the mountain now? Something like this, which can easily become the only thing people want to talk about, even if it's been decades. Uh, how how has your relationship with um, that that you know time in '86 um, changed through the years?
1: Ooh, well, I, I I lived in two worlds for a long time. I I I was catapulted into a whole new career of 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 public speaking and inspirational speaking, and so I talked about Everest a lot. And yet, when I was at home and amidst my friends. Um, I didn't talk about Everest and they and it's funny most people in my community knew I didn't want to talk about Everest <laughs> <laughs> but, because it did overtake my life it, it it was like this overbearing friend that often preceded me into rooms because people would recognize me right mm. and and uh, it would take over the conversations and and people I felt like people weren't didn't know me mm. I was the Everest lady for goodness mm. sake and So now I I think by, um, how do I, where is it now? What is my relationship with Debra's now? Is I have, I think I have, it's taken me 30 years to really integrate it into my life and accept it, acknowledge it, um, stroke it (laughs) now and then and, 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 um, and be very, very
0: grateful. This book that you've written Rising is that uh, a product of those 30 years of uh, of getting uh, comfortable with it uh, or of getting people to know you as opposed to just the mountain?
1: Uh yeah, my I I the the, the book well, the writing came first because I found it so highly engaging. You know, after Everest, I felt uh, a, a tremendous loss because I think I was pretty much done with alpine climbing mm. and And the big question was, what is next? What can I rise to? I want I need that feeling of passion and purpose and and a number of uh, of of challenges came up. But one of them um, was to write this story for no other reason but to be but to to turn myself inside out and really examine all the questions I felt were lingering after Everest. And it it I I loved the process. It changed the way I read, it changed the way I observe the world around me, changed the way I appreciate. And so rising sorry, long answer to short question, is a is a product of that thirty years of, you know, I feel like I, my perspective has been steeped in that time. I'm a little wiser. I'm a little, I can be a little more honest about my frailties and my motivations. And it's more not about me. I believe it's all about us. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) When did you start to uh, put all this to words? I mean, it's one thing to live this, but another thing to, to put it into words, and especially into written word, which can be hard sometimes to uh, convey uh, the thoughts that anybody has, when did you start to put it to words and and what was the process uh, through which you wrote this book, whether it was you know a particular place that you went to where you found most beneficial uh, to writing if you were just writing at at your desk at home uh, or 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 where you found the time and space to create uh, what you have
1: I started writing this book about twelve years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was going to be a compilation of short stories. And uh, I took uh, a number of fabulous writing courses through the BAMP Center. And, and they were residential courses. And, and uh, one uh, m- uh, mentor, uh, editor said, hey, I'm sorry, but you've got to make Everest the... Timeline for your story. Mm-hmm. Sorry. There's no way around it. It's just too big <laughs> <laughs> And so uh, over the years um, uh, Between these courses I would go away and binge I I can't really write in my own home if um, If anyone else is around my mm-hmm. poor husband mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Stop reading,
2: <laughs> <Keep> reading.
1: <laughs> And uh, and uh, I would go away. I love writing outside Uh, so I would, um, go into the mountains with my lawn chair and, uh, fully charged battery. (laughs)
0: Uh
1: (laughs) um, And I also stayed in a lot of people's vacant houses. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, So just being able to find a a space alone where you could be with your thoughts or, or be able to, to sit and think and write unimpeded by, by other distractions or, or mostly other people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. To recreate an experience that, um. And And first person,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> first person, present tense experience. Um, it was super intense. And uh, yeah, I had to kind of get myself in that state of mind.
0: What's been the best writing advice that you've received, or or sort of the the biggest difference that you've noticed in in getting you from, I don't know a first draft or those early years, twelve years ago, to a finished product, a finished book. You know, what what was what made the biggest leap for you in quality, in in feeling like this was, you know, now approaching your best work in whatever it was?
1: Huh. I've had a number of uh, I've had some great advice over the years. Um, And uh, the first advice was just write the whole dang thing out. Right. Don't 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 try. Don't try fixing it or as some people would say, polishing those little turds because you may not keep them, you know. So write the whole thing out. And then the next best advice I had was don't um, think of your through line now. Think of your through line and and get rid of all the peripheral um, stuff. Um, And that was towards the end of it. And the very best advice was don't write down every little neurotic thought you've got, Sharon. Hmm. (laughs) We all have them, and we're all so very close to being just a little bit mad, but you don't need to tell everybody that.
0: (laughs) Uh, Everest, uh, we've, we've talked about this a bit already, it's a different world than it was in the 80s. You hear about overcrowding these days, you hear about Unfit and inexperienced climbers making attempts, um, what do you make of what's changed in the in the years since uh, you were there in '86 and what it has since become?
1: I have to be careful with that
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that answer. Um, I have been you know watching this change creep up for decades
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, about a decade after we Uh, Climbed it. Uh, The commercial era began on Everest, where uh, people, uh, the most people, would buy their way onto a commercial expedition and um, climb one of the two most often climbed routes that were fixed from bottom to top, and it became the great thing. The great thing about climbing over this last thirty years is it has become a much more accessible sport, mm-hmm. and I'm very biased. I think that this sport is fantastic and it teaches you a lot. Um, the 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 disturbing part of it is that it's too accessible for some. It's commodified. Uh, an objective like Everest where someone sees it or can add it to their bucket list is one might their first running their first marathon. And mm-hmm. I just don't think it's in quite the same league.
0: Right. Right.
1: That's, <clears throat> um, a very understated, I would say, um, that I think it is, uh, very important to put in the, the apprenticeship, um, before you go to that mountain, because not only are you uh, risking your own life, um, uh, with that lack of experience, you're, experience you're, you're risking other people's lives in drawing them into your rescue.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that that's that's how I feel about that, and I don't I don't know what to do about it. I, I think it's it, the most disturbing part of it is that it's a statement about our culture and what we value. That mm-hmm. we're more we're after the trophy more than we're after the experience. Mm-hmm. And um, there are thousands of beautiful peaks in the world where you have to breathe way too hard and work very hard to get to the top of.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, they may not be the brand name peaks, but they are. That is the experience, and and uh, that's certainly what I would choose now. Um, you've got to question your motives. You've got to question your motives for climbing a mountain like that.
2: Mm
0: yeah state like that uh, yeah yeah, um everest already mentioned you know can be so easily the thing that takes up space in a person's life even if uh even if you know you spend thirty years trying to to put something like that behind you um and also uh writing a book can be a very time consuming process, you know, twelve years is a long time to sit with something um where do you? Where do you derive your your purpose and and meaning from nowadays? Where is your greatest sense of satisfaction and and of meaning from now?
1: Um well, I'm 62 years old now. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, just, uh, two days ago I did a fabulous, uh, 800 meter, uh, climb, a technical rock climb and, uh, nobody will have ever heard of it if they don't live in the Bow Valley. And that's where it's at for me. I still have a tremendous passion and, uh, derive tremendous joy and, um, uh, engagement in in the mountains I I, I so love climbing um, I value my relationships I believe a lot more than I used to everything less is more these mm. days and um, this book isn't over mm. um, this story is just beginning I believe and I'm going on the road with it and I'm touring with it and I'm having to present it in front of my peers for goodness sake which is terrifying. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm not reading easy yet. Yeah, and, But I do look forward to the day that I can go back to my garden.
0: Yeah, uh, it'll be a, a nice day when it comes, I'm sure.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Sharon, her book Rising comes out in October of 2019 through Douglas and McIntyre. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor and hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and most of all, tell someone else you think might like it. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can, you can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at martin underscore bauman. Theme music for Story Untold is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a Story Untold. See you next time.